seen it develop and see the way the Lord has worked over the years. Um, my background was farming. Um, I developed the agricultural project and have seen it grow over the years. I'd have gladly done that all of my life. And now, unfortunately, I'm CEO and it's like a life sentence. It's a nightmare. But God is good. And um, we, above all, give him the praise and honor for everything that's gone on over 31 years. We've been able to share the love of Jesus. We've been able to support and care for over 5,000 individuals, nearly 6,000 individuals. And at this present moment in time, which Gail will talk more about in a little while, we're supporting about 250 on a weekly basis throughout the different areas of Caring for Life's ministry. But I've been asked many times, when did Caring for Life start? And even though I said we were founded 31 years ago, we started in Genesis 3 when the fall came. Because from then on, there was going to be poor and there was going to be needy. There were going to be broken people in the world. So we're just following thousands of years, God's people seeking to reach out in God's name. And of course, when our Savior came, now through Jesus' name, to reach out to the poor and the needy. And so to understand where Caring for Life came from, to understand why you should be having compassion for the needy and the poor, we don't listen to any man say about it or any ministry that's going to be great up there and years. We've got to listen to what God says about it. And that's where we're going to start in a minute. Um, Caring for Life, um, well, I did, tried to develop this little flyer a few years ago to summarize CFL's ministry because I'd be waffling on for hours if we just said, tell me about Caring for Life. Because there's so many different strands and Jason's been over and seen the work. There's so many different strands to the work that it's hard to summarize it. So, we tried to summarize it in a little flyer. And on the front, it says, Caring for Life, inspired by Jesus. Because we are inspired by him. Left to our own devices, we wouldn't do a lot for others. But because it's of, because he inspires us through his spirit, we do what we do today. And here is this homeless young girl sat on a cardboard box with a blanket over her legs. And on that cardboard box, it says, handle with extreme care. See, I think we are called as believers, all of us to take Jesus' love to these damaged homes and handle each and every one of them with extreme care because they're an individual who's been made in the image of God, therefore deserves to be treated with the utmost of respect and dignity. So that's what we are, inspired by him to handle everybody with extreme care, no matter where they come from in society. And then on the back of the flyer, it says that we are a registered Christian charity and our mission is to rescue damaged and vulnerable men and women many of whom have been homeless or suffered abuse. And we seek to rebuild, a broken, uh, we, we seek to rebuild broken lives through love and practical care, and most importantly, to restore a broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. Those three R's really summarize Caring for Lives ministry. Rescuing, rebuilding, restoring. Of course, restoring is the greatest need for any individual. So that's Caring for Life in a nutshell. Really, the heart of the matter, we have to go back and look at what the Lord says through Scripture to understand why we are here. We know in Colossians 3 that we're told to proclaim the gospel both in word and in deed and do it all in the name of Jesus. And that's why we're doing these things. And that's how we seek to do these things. Um, one of my heroes is a guy called Robert Murray McShane. I'm sure some of you have heard of him. An amazing young man with preached so many sermons, and he said this. He said, the Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. I wish that was the case for me. I know I've been a stumbling block at times. I'm sure you have been too. 
And we have to ask the Lord daily to help us with that battle, don't we? But we want to be people who make it easy for others to believe in God. And that means that when we look at the world and look at people around us, we have to pray that we can see people through the eyes of Jesus. See them as people, not as problems. You know, we have a tendency, I believe, especially in care work and ministry, to think we can sort everybody's problems out. Helmut Tillicke, again, one of my favorite German theologians, said, our job is not to master the public, only to make the master public. Isn't that good? We think we can sort people's problems out. We really can't. But you can live life with them. You can let them know they have a friend or they have somebody who does care and love them. But ultimately, there is one who can solve their problems. That's what we're called to do, I believe. Caring for Life's compassionate ministry seeks to meet people's needs. And as that flyer says, in very practical ways, but through it to seek to enable people to believe in God, the God that has inspired us to go. And in all we do, we just want to proclaim that wonderful gospel message. And we want to do it in what we say and in what we do. If we're believers, then surely we believe that the word of God is his word to us, authoritative. And he's speaking to us through his word. If you believe 2 Timothy 3.16, then we have to heed its advice, don't we? And take it seriously. And if Jesus really was the word made flesh, God stepping into our world, then when he speaks, more than anything, we have to listen. And we have to take on board what he says. I believe scripture from start to end highlights our responsibility to care for the poor. All people, of course. But certainly the marginalized. Certainly the needy, those who have been um, set aside by society, looked down upon by the world. We have a responsibility given by God, following from the poor, to do that. Every single one of us who confess the name of Jesus. And of course, we know that everybody has different gifts. Not everybody can be a pastoral worker or somebody who goes and counsels or somebody who can even spend time with people who are so badly damaged. Some are fair well gifts. Others are givers. But we're all called to the same mission. That's the body of Christ, isn't it? Working together, different gifts, with one goal. I believe that's so clear through Scripture. But if we look at some of these scriptural passages, and I don't know if you want to fire some of these verses down, there's an overwhelming challenge from start to finish to care for the poor. I once met a fellow, a pastor, a traveling pastor, who had ripped out and cut out all the passages, references to caring for the poor out of his Bible, and he had a tattered book tattered book. He said, God's heart is for the lost, of course, but also for the needy. In Deuteronomy 15, 11, God says to us there, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29, the same. Chapter 16, 9 to 15, the same. 26, verse 12, the same to care for the poor in your land. Chapter 24, Verse 19 to 22, the same. Care for the poor in your land. Proverbs 21, 13, I believe is one of the most powerful calls from God to help those who are hungry. Because he says this, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. That's a big, big challenge, that one, isn't it? In 1 John 3, 17, John states that if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And then Job, in Job 29, 12, 
The Lord says to him, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. Proverbs 31, 8 to 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's a big part of our work at Caring for Life. Speaking up for those who can't speak, those who have no voice, those who don't know how to speak up for themselves. We seek to give them a voice. Proverbs 29, 7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. These are big challenges, aren't they, in God's work. There is a command through all the Levitical laws, and they're in Exodus 23, to care for the widow, the alien, and the orphan. It's a wonderful song that reverberates through the Old Testament. For God's people to go and care for the widow, the alien, and the orphan. Leviticus 19, verse 9 to 10. Leviticus 25, um, verse 35 to 38, again 39 to 43. Exodus 23, 10 to 11. Go and care for the widow, the alien, and the orphan. The two passages that really have been the greatest inspiration to caring for life, and I'll tell you how the Lord was working in a moment when we started caring for life, was first of all in Isaiah. Isaiah 58, where, Jesus, where God was speaking to the Israelites about true fasting because they were moaning and miserable. And he said, you call yourself my children. You call yourself my followers. Well, let me tell you what a follower of mine looks like. He says, is this the kind of fasting I have chosen only for a day to, for a man to humble himself? Is it only for buying one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And he says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And then this is the power of what God is proclaiming us to do. This is what happens. He says, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. And if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your life will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. Isn't that glorious? Isaiah, speaking God's words to his people. Are you going to follow me then? This is what it looks like. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says the same things to us. And again, this is one of those passages that has been a huge challenge and a huge inspiration to us at Caring for Life, where Jesus speaks about the sheep and the goats, Then from verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the Lord, then the righteous will answer, him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. A mighty challenge there. That's a wonderful call. That's why we do these things. Jesus is actually saying, it's, it's, it's as if I was stood there. You're doing it to me. And that's where we should be taking our lead from what Jesus has said. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, those who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. He also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of me, these you did not do for me. Powerful words, but they're precious words that if we embrace and go forward with, the Lord will bless because this is God's work doing these things. You know, one of the things that I love when I read through the, the Gospels is seeing Jesus in action. And, you know, whenever Jesus was moved with compassion, and you know the word compassion just is not just a feeling. It is an action. It's something that you do. Whenever Jesus was moved with compassion, he did something. It led him to do something. In Matthew 14, we read there that he was moved with compassion, and it led him to go out and heal the sick. He, he went out to them to heal them. In Matthew 15, 32, moved with compassion, he went and fed the hungry. Why? Because they'd been sitting under his ministry for days. He saw them tired and hungry and about to go home. He thinks they ain't going to get home unless I feed them. So he feeds them, moved with compassion, seeing the need before him. Mark 1, one of the most wonderful moments in Jesus' ministry where he meets the leper. A total outcast, totally separated from any human touch separated from society, he does what no holy man should do and he touches the leper because he was moved with compassion. Luke 7, and I love this one in Luke 7, where Jesus sees this woman in Nain coming out. She's a widow. She's burying her son. So she's destitute. She has no hope. Jesus moves with compassion, goes and meets her, meets her crowd with his crowd on the outskirts of Nain. And I love the way it says that he went and touches the coffin, raises the boy to life, and gives the son back to the mother. Why? Because he was moved with compassion. He could not help himself. His compassion led him to go and do that unthinkable thing. And the challenge for us all, if we love the Lord, is that we should be called to have the same compassion as Jesus. 1 Peter 3.8, called to have the same. It says we're to be, uh, be like-minded in compassion to Jesus. Philippians 2, 5, to have the same mindset as Christ. Now, of course, we can never achieve that. But we must do our best. We must strive to emulate our Savior if we adore him, if we love him. You know, these things that we do, and I know you do many things here. I'm, I'm talking to the converted here. I know you guys have a real heart for this church. For not just the lost, but the needy. I know you do. But these things that we do are not done to credit us. We're not done to earn our way to heaven. Not at all. We're not to, done to win as brownie points before God. Ephesians 2.8, 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We do this because of what he has first done for us. That's the only reason why. We love because God first loved us, 1 John 4.10. It's an expression of our gratitude to Jesus who died for our sins, to wash us white as snow, so we may stand one day before God righteous, all because of him, all because of him. That's why we love. That's why Jesus came to save us, to give us hope, faith, to give us not just hope for today, but a brighter hope for tomorrow, as I love to talk about. We have so many people at CFL, they have no hope for today. And I said, you can have hope for today, but I'm telling you, you can have a better one for tomorrow. Because of this man who died on a cross for you. And of course, we know also from Scripture, and if you'll turn to James, this is one of those most, one of those incredibly powerful passages. Because there is the result of faith without the actions of compassion. And James speaks to us in James 1 verse 27, he says, religious, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, Martin Luther, the, the reformer, used to talk about the book of James as being a stro- right story epistle, he said. He didn't think right a lot of it because he thought, he, was, he thought James was saying that you're saved by the works you do. James not saying that at all. Saying, if you have faith in your heart, then something's going to flow from you. It's an outworking of the faith that you have. But he goes on in chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is, and it's a mighty word, dead. Pretty serious, isn't it? We're to take God's word really seriously. I love Psalm 41, especially verse 1, because the psalmist writes, Blessed are those who consider the poor, for they'll be delivered in time to come. Our chairman of trustees is a smashing guy called Bill Bybridge. He's a pastor in Liverpool. He's uh, the chaplain of Liverpool Football Club. I know Johnny really loves Liverpool Football Club. And uh, I heard him speak on this, 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 one, this one verse. He said, why do we care for the poor? Why do we consider the poor? He said, this is why. Number one, it's commanded by the Lord. You can't get around that. Number two, it's crucial for our lives. We're blessed when we care for the poor. But number three, and this is what drives me on, and I hope it does you too, it's compelling to the lost. When you take God's love into the world and meet needs, yes, we tell them that there is a, the Savior of the world died for their sins, but then you show them how much they mean to you and how much they mean to God. It's compelling to them. They ask questions. It prompts their hearts to think, why? Why? Those three points, all from that one verse, commanded, crucial, but compelling. I believe that this ministry that we're blessed to be part of and very privileged to be and unworthy to be part of, really, is inspired and instituted, commissioned and commanded by God. We're not doing anything new. We're just doing what the Lord has commanded us to do, something that his people have been doing 
for many, many thousands of years. We just follow in the footsteps of God's words, but most importantly, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ himself as we seek to go and meet the lost. Now I'm going to tell you briefly about Caring for Life's history, because that's why we're here, okay? It started a long time ago. My father moved to Leeds in 1968 as a young Baptist minister. He's always had a heart for the marginalized, and uh, he started some camps in the early 70s for kids off the local estate in Hare Hills in Chapel Town. And he set aside a quarter of those places to be funded by the church for kids from children's homes, kids from dysfunctional families. And they disappear off to Wales and have an amazing week or two. And many kids came to faith on those camps. So he'd always had a heart for those kinds of camps. Um, his church was a very grand Baptist church when he moved to, to Leeds. By the time he left there, three years later, there was nearly 300 people in that church. And he started what was uh, called Leeds Reformed Baptist Church. There was a split in the union, and, and he really believed he should leave. And um, in that church, Leeds Reformed Baptist Church, a lady came who had come to Leeds as a, as a student. Her name was Esther Smith. And she really felt called to go on the mission field. She'd studied theology. She was an absolute genius in the Greek and Hebrew, really knew the scriptures. And she felt, I'm called to go on the mission field. Now, I've got to be honest with you, if you know Esther, it would have been a total disaster if she had left the country. It would have been carnage because she's not the most practically minded person. She's got the biggest heart and she has a huge amount of compassion and wisdom when it comes to caring for vulnerable people. She's an amazing soul. If you read books about great people, there should be one written about Esther Smith, wonderful lady, but she's that humble, you'll never read one. So you're hearing it from me. She was a student in the church. She thought, is this where the Lord leading me, mission field? And then she really felt convicted to move into social work, working for lead social services, working in the children's homes as like a senior house mother. So she did that, ended up running one of the children's, well, two or three children's homes she worked her way through until she was in one which was called Foxcroft. And some of those kids would come to Sunday school and Bible class, some of them would come on the camps. And... We had a, quite a number of them that wanted to come, that were coming along on a Sunday. And they were the kids that I grew up with in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. Scallies, I'll tell you what, Sunday school teachers, oh, they had a blast. They didn't know what hit them on some of those Sundays. They really didn't. But they were precious, precious times, great kids. And um, we saw many come to faith in the Lord. But what happened to those kids was when they turned 16, 17, they left their home where they'd had everything done for them, placed in a flat, bed sit, and really left to it. I remember Andrew, one particular guy who had had a horrendous upbringing. Remember the baby pee case? It was all over the news. Andrew described himself as a survived baby pee. I mean, the abuse that was inflicted to him was horrendous. There was not a bone in his body that hadn't been broken. There were, um, and that you can still see him today, little burn marks all over his body they'd stub cigarettes out there. When the social services eventually took him out of their home, there was like bits of coal from the fire that had been thrown on numerous times had to be picked off the skin. Awful abuse. And this boy had gone from living his whole life in care to then being by himself and was just getting in a mess. He was getting in trouble with the police. His flat was becoming a right mess. 
And in the church at that time, there must have been about 15 or 16 individuals that had gone through the care system and were very much involved with the church. At least a dozen were there every single week. And then one or two others that hadn't gone through the care system, but who were vulnerable young people. And my father said to Esther one morning, Sunday morning, there was Andrew, there was Shane, there was, there was Brian and other guys stood there. And, and he says to Esther, he said, you know, Esther, somebody ought to do something about this. Look at him. And she's only so high, and she turned and she prodded him in the chest and said, well, what are you going to do about it, Pastor? And if you ask me dad today, he'll say, I've still got the bruises to prove to give me a prod. And she did. She prodded him in the chest. What are you going to do, Pastor? And he said, well, what can, what can I do? I'm just a Baptist minister, Esther. She said, we can do something. We can do nothing. The choice is yours. Turns away and walks off. It's a bit rude the way you speak to your pastor. If somebody comes up and gives you a cough around the ear, what are you going to do about it, hey, Jason? And that's what happened. You know, I, I, I often say to people, there were four S's working there. The scriptures were working. The sun was at work. The spirit was at work. And the scene was at work. And I'll explain why. I said to my dad on our 25th anniversary, tell me about that first Sunday when Esther spoke to me. He said, well, the amazing thing was this, Jonathan. He said, my morning reading before I went to church that morning, I got up early, was Isaiah 58. And in the evening service, he was preaching on Matthew 25 in his series. He hadn't planned it. That's what he was preaching on. The Lord had planned it. And he said, when he finished preaching in the evening, and Esther had given him a prod in the chest, and he still was speaking. And he could see these kids in the congregation, which is the scene that's been set. He said, I just had to close my Bible. I did the final hymn. I did the benediction. I had to go home. And he went home, and he just wept. He said, what are you asking me to do? Because you see, the scene that was set before him was the same scene that Jesus saw. Remember? All those harassed people, like shepherd, no, sheep without a shepherd. That's the same scene. And the son was saying, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. I'm stood before you. So the scene was speaking to him. And thankfully, the spirit was very much at work too. And he thought, how can I not do something? So he got a few like-minded people together and they said, look, we've got this challenge. What are we going to do? There's this increasing number of homeless people in our city. We've got people right under our noses. They need support. They need somebody to be there for them. We know the Lord is commanding us to do this. What are we going to do? So there was one guy in our church was moving away down south, and he said, uh, you can have my house if you're going to look after some guys because they'd started formulating, let's try and deal with this immediate need of homelessness, and then let's see if we can start developing some kind of ministry like we've got today but never thought we'd get quite where we are today. So... One lad who was in the church who hadn't gone through the care system, who we still support today, was a guy who had been groomed and targeted by a bank manager and was being sexually exploited. He was coming to the church. And we said to this young man, we said, if we're able to get a safe place for you to live, would you be interested in moving in? He said, well, yes, Uncle Peter, I'd like to do that. So we mustn't tell anybody to see what we can do. This is before the age of the mobile phone. We lived on a little farm up a bumpy old track, middle of nowhere. We had 87 individuals contact my dad that day, 87. He's glad he didn't tell anybody. And, I, and I, this is no lie. I remember late at night, you'd be in the house and you'd hear, <laughs> and you'd think, who the heck is that? 
is you've been to the farm, not the new track, but the old bumpy track. You'd open the door, there'd be two or three lads there, and you'd think the fa pastor Parkinson, right? You'd hear your opening at home from the movie. It was like that. Unbelievable. It, all it did really was just to blow the lid off the needs. It was more than we realized. The needs are massive. So we put our first four guys in a house that our, this businessman was moving away down south, and that enabled us to do it. I remember one of those guys was a guy called Larry. And the day we uh, went to pick him up, it was a tragic story. He uh, lived at home with mum and dad. His mum contracted cancer, died of cancer. He was only about 14, 15. He comes home before his 16th birthday to find his father hanging in the bedroom because his father couldn't cope. And he lived in this house until social services realized it was this lad living by himself. He then went to live with his sister. And by the time we got there two years later, he turned up at the house. And I don't know, do you remember the, the old coal bunkers that had a little square hole in the top and you poured your coal and it was a little slide up? That's where he lived, in the coal bunker. So we took him. He had uh, two plastic bags. looked like they were full of clothes. When we got to the house, we opened his bags. He just had rolled up newspapers and stolen them just to make him look like he had something. All he had was the clothes he was stood up in. So we went and bought him some clothes and underwear and new shoes, took him back to the house and put his clothes in the washing machine. They just disintegrated. Heartbreaking. They're really heartbreaking. He's one of many I could tell you about in those early days that we came into contact with whose needs were massive. Never mind those who had just gone through the care system. Other kids too, young people too, who were in massive need. We went to Leeds City Council, and again, thoughts were formulating about how we were going to start supporting people, recognizing we can't just have lots of houses, but can we do housing support? Can we help people find homes and maybe go and visit them? It was all volunteers in those early days that were involved in this. We went to the council because they were knocking down a, a, an old estate, the Meanwood estate, which is what was known as the White Houses, or townhouses. All derelicts, and we, it was a three-year demolition plan. And we said, "Could we have one of your townhouses, the middle townhouse?" And miraculously, God's provision, they said, "Yes, you can." So we took this middle one, gutted it, knocked through to the next door, so we get twice as many guys in there and girls, and, and and renovated it all up. And that enabled us to get some folks into there. We had that for over two years, and it gave us that time to grow and develop. My father was out on the road saying to people, "We've got this fledgling ministry." This is our mission. This is what we believe God's called us to do. Will you get behind us? And we've, ever, we've done that ever since. Been on the road trying to get people behind us. That's how we survive. But that became a safe place for about 16 individuals. And then as time's gone on, we enabled, when those houses went, we moved some of them into flats and we continued support that. It didn't take a genius and it didn't take us long to realize that if people aren't doing something through the day, problems occur. <laughs> Some of those guys were on YTS schemes, and back in the day, there was something called community industry. And if you had that over here, those kind of schemes, they were good schemes. Got lads learning brick lane and all sorts of things. Some were on those schemes, but some were doing absolutely nothing. We'd moved to this old farm in 1980, which eventually my dad just gave to Caring for Life, so we had a base somewhere to grow from uh, in 87 when we started. But he said, if you're not doing anything, come up to the farm, just give you a stepping stone, it'll just give you something to do and it's become a very special place which I'd like to show you a film, we've shown a film, oh you'll see a wee bit on that film in a minute I think, but the farm is a, a haven, it really is a haven 
for people to come and use skills that they never thought they had. You know, we learned a lot in those early days. We had people who had big hearts. Some people were very experienced. I mean, my father was very experienced in pastoral ministry. He was no mug, and Esther was no mug. But we learned the hard way. I learned the hard way. I was only like 17, 18 when Caring for Life started. I made many mistakes in those early days. Learned to listen before I speak. They've got two ears for a reason, haven't they? And one mouth. You learn lessons. But one thing I think that we've never lost is how we see people. We really love people and we see them as people who God has made and they're precious in his eyes. And they're not just tools or not just people to be abused and thrown on the wayside, but people to be treasured, looked after, valued. And I don't think we will ever lose that. I hope and pray we never, ever will. You know, just thinking about the value of somebody. We had a guy come to us. I'll tell you his name because you won't mind. He's a marvelous testimony. His name's Anthony. And he's still with us today. He came to us maybe a couple of years in. And um, had a big bushy beard, big thick glasses. He looked all right. He looked all right then, to be honest with you. He wouldn't give you any eye contact, anything. He turned up handcuffed to a police officer and with a probation officer. And we were told that he had been around all the other agencies. Nobody else can do anything with him. He's got a criminal record as long as his arm. He's quite a dangerous guy, actually. He's probably maybe at least 20, 30 convictions. And he's only like 20 years old. And um, they said, you know, we've tried everywhere else. Will you help him? You know, and we said, well, let us have a chat with him. Well, he doesn't talk, you know. He won't talk to him. He doesn't talk to us. And my father said, well, look. We're about for your wisdom, but let us just have him for a minute or two in the office, and we'll just explain about caring for life. So then unhandcuffed, we left him in the office of our old, it was just a scout hut that we had in the early days. It was a right, in fact, the farm was like Beirut. If you ever visited the farm, it was like Beirut. It's a very different place now. And uh, Anthony sits there, just looks at the carpet, no sense. And my father explained to him what caring for life was, what we could offer him. We can offer him a room. We had a place in, in one of our homes. And we have the farm, if you'd like to come and take part here, we'd love to do that. Explain things to him. And then my dad said, well, the guys out there say you can't talk. But of course, they're experts in things that we don't know a lot about, to be honest with you. And Anthony, you can certainly just smile for a, a moment. And he said, well, all you have to do, Anthony, is just say yes. We'll offer you a place if you'd like to come here. And they sat there in silence for minutes. You sit in silence for more than 10 seconds, you start feeling a bit uncomfortable, don't you? It's like, somebody say something. They sat there in silence. And then Anthony, out of the blue, goes, yes. <laughs> Fine. Called him in, said, Anthony wants to stay. He's told he'd like to stay. He said, do you want him now? He said, I want him now. That's fine. And he stayed, and he's still with us today. Anthony started working with the goats. And can I tell you, he didn't talk to them. He got the odd grunt, but you certainly got no conversation. And that made looking after him very, very difficult. Moved into our home, started coming to the farm, working with the goats. One of our goats was a goat called Goldie, the Golden Guernsey. That's original, isn't it? But that's what she was called. And Anthony would go and look them out and feed them and, and look after them. He'd been with us months. We never had a conversation. And then one day, my dad heard him talking to Goldie the goat in the goat shed. Gail said, Anthony's autistic, quite severely autistic, really. And yeah, my father heard him. He went into the goat shed, and Anthony just went quiet. And he, and he saw my dad coming. He turned me back, turned his back on my dad, and he just leant against the goat pen. 
So dad came and he said, Anthony, I heard you talking. I heard your face talking. I'd love to know how you talk. I'd love to know if you're happy. Would you talk to me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So he left. The next day, we heard exactly the same thing. Anthony talking to the goat. So my dad went into the goat shed and Anthony turned his back again, just like the day before. He said, Anthony, please talk to me. I heard you talking. I heard you talking to the goat. Surely you'll talk to me. Nothing. So my dad goes, Goldie, will you ask Anthony how he is today? Is he happy at caring for life? And Anthony, this is no lie. My dad tells this story. He said he was leaning against the pen like that and he looked at my dad as if he was like, Like looked at him as if he was mad and then leant on the pen again. Just stood there in silence again. And then he goes, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm fine. Like that. that was the first thing he ever said. I'm fine. So my dad said, that's great, Anthony. Goldie, would you ask Anthony, is there anything more we can do to make his life any better at caring for life? Is there anything that's upsetting him or you know, annoying him? Because we just want him to be happy. And Anthony gives a big sigh and he goes, Silence again, pen down, and then he goes, tell him I'm fine, I'm just sick of all this talking. I'm sick of talking, sick of talking. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the first conversation we had with Anthony Breen. Dangerous criminal with a criminal record, as long as you're alive. Now, Anthony started coming to Bible study. Have you ever seen the rain man? What a genius. Amazing, you know? Could memorize things. Anthony uh, came to Bible study, asked for a Bible after a little while. And a few months later, my father just quoted something that Jesus said. And, and he comes out with like, Matthew 7, like, Matthew 7. Don't you say? Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I've read that. He said, listen, the Bible study. Really? Yeah, I've read all of it. And it became apparent that this lad had read all the New Testament. He started working his way through the Bible. And he knew loads of the scripture just off by heart. Anthony's two gifts when he first came to Caring for Life was, First of all, if you wanted a bus or a train anywhere in the whole of Yorkshire, he'd know what time the bus stopped at every single stop. Amazing, right? And if you were a gambler, he'd tell you what the odds are for the horses. He knew all the horse racing, right? But um, I got called in as the Grim Reaper, like I usually was, when there were issues in the homes. And I was told, Esther's a bit uncomfortable about something, and we need you to go and sort it out. I said, what's that? She said, Anthony's got two budgies, and he's named one. Esther, she doesn't really like being called a budgie named after her, and the other one is called Jesus. So <laughs> I said, oh, come on. No, you've got to go and speak to him. So I go up and see him, and uh, I say, Anthony, Esther's asked me to come and talk to you about your budgies. He goes, what's that do with you? I said, well, nothing really, but I've just been told I've got to talk to you about their names. Yeah. Well, you've called one Esther, and she's not very comfortable about that. And you've called the other one Jesus, and that's a very special name. I know. I said, why have you called them that? He said, two best friends. Isn't that glorious? My two best friends. Anthony gave his testimony the day he was baptized. And at the end of his testimony, he said, I don't know why the things happened to me that they did, but I know there's a God that loves me. You see, Anthony, when he was just a little boy, about 11, 12 years old, lived in a home with mum and dad and two sisters, and his father was an alcoholic. He used to come home after work knock him about and then sexually abuse him day after day after day and he became more and more withdrawn and his mum used to say don't hurt the girls and Anthony was the one that got the brunt of it so he would uh, just withdraw 
And the school recognized there was something wrong with this boy. And he was taken into care. And then the man who ran the children's home also started to say something. So Anthony starts running away from the children's home, lives on the streets. To survive on the streets, he starts nicking. The police start getting on his back because he's nicking to survive. And he keeps getting taken back to the children's home as a naughty boy. And then 16-year-old Anthony, who really doesn't communicate with anybody anymore, because why? He doesn't trust anybody. Lives in a flat, says, I'm not living in this, and lives on the streets for three, four years. Again, stealing and gambling to survive. So the Anthony that comes to us, handcuffed, as a dangerous man. Not dangerous at all. He's just damaged. He's just never experienced love. And thank God he came to experience the love of Jesus just through what we sought to do, you know. I tell you what, he's a pain in the ass. But boy, do I love him. There's only one difference between Anthony and me, really. Okay, and that's this. I'm an expert at hiding my sin. Anthony wears his life on his sleeve for everybody to see. And I think our job is, what we're told, cover over one another's sin. Bear with one another. And that's what we're called to do. You know, you will understand this, I'm sure some of you. Damage that people suffer in this world is very deep. Very deep. And the scars will never go until they see Jesus face to face, until he completely washes them away. And I believe in this life, our responsibility is to almost be the hands of Jesus covering over those wounds so they don't get exposed to the elements. But no, sometimes they'll be pu- our hands will be pushed away and the scars will become open again. There's only one who can really bring peace to that situation, and that's our Savior, isn't it? That's what it's all about. That's what the compassion of a Christian is all about. Putting broken people back together again with Jesus' love the Spirit's power in this world that we've been called to minister in. Can I just say this, because I don't know, I've probably waffled on way, way too long, I apologize. At the beginning of Nicky Cruz's book, Run Baby Run, it's a great book, I don't know if you've read it, but at the beginning there, Nicky has a conversation with his wife, and you can hear the, the tiredness in her voice, because she was some fella on, the <laughs> on a mission for Jesus. And this is what it says at the beginning of the, that book. He says to her, he says, do you remember last year when we drove out to Point Loma on the Bay of San Diego? Remember that huge lighthouse? For years it has been a gui- it has guided ships into the harbor, but now times have changed. I read last week that there is too much smog and they've had to build a new lighthouse down near the water so the light can shine under the smog. Gloria listened intently. This is what's happening today. The church still stands with its light shining high, but few people can see it because times have changed and there is much smog. A new light is needed to shine near to the ground down where the people are. It's not enough for me to be a keeper in the lighthouse. I must be a bearer of the light as well. So I'm not running anymore. I just want to be where the action is. I know Gloria said, her voice reflecting her deep pride and understanding And that's what I want for you, but you may have to go it alone. You know that, don't you? And Nikki said this, not alone. Reaching down, he placed his hands over hers, and he said, I'll be walking in Jesus' turf, so I won't be alone. Isn't that wonderful? Wonderful. You see, Jesus' turf is where the people are. 
you know, when we think of holy ground, we think of cathedrals. We've planted up in churches. Holy ground is the gutters and the highways and the byways and the back streets and the bedsits and the places where people live all by themselves in mucky hovels. Because that's where Jesus went. And wherever he went, he made it holy ground. And if we love Jesus, we want to follow in his footsteps, go wherever he went. No holds barred. Don't judge people as the world judges them. Just take his love and take his light. One of the great things, and I'll close with this, that Caring for Life seeks to do is to replace sad memories with happy memories. Some of you have maybe experienced some very sad times in your life. The Lord was there and knows each and every one. And he grieves and will have grieved, as he does with every person who suffers. I was very blessed and have had a very happy childhood. Father was a Baptist minister and he saw many muppets in the church and caused my dad many years of pain. But thankfully it didn't break my faith. It didn't break my faith. It made me realize that there is a God who is greater than even our human weaknesses. Okay? But I've had a blessed childhood. And many of the people we have the privilege of sharing Jesus' love with haven't had that. So we replace sad memories with happy memories. If you come to the farm, it's a happy place. There's laughter, there's joy. It's not always like that when people first come, but Thankfully, we now live in this generation where we've got folks who have come to faith. They're now sharing the love of Jesus with us. We've got people that come who say, there's something nice about this place. And it's because the Lord is at work. We're just doing our bit, but it's the Lord that is at work and enabling these things to happen. But it was a few years ago now, back, uh, back in the day when there were no speed restrictions on Windermere. And some of the do-gooders stopped you driving really fast with your speedboats on Lake Windermere and the lake. And uh, we had the, the use of a ski boat. And we used to take some of our guys water skiing. Any of you been water skiing here? No? John has. Any of you? You and me, mate. Must be in the name, Jonathan. There you go. And uh, we, we took some of our guys up to Lake Windermere on a regular basis, water skiing. Now, we couldn't afford wetsuits back in the day. So they used to just wear shorts and T-shirts. We gave them life jackets. We're not that stupid. We gave them life jackets. We didn't want to lose any at that point anyway. And... Uh, I remember one particular guy called Brian. I gave him a lesson in water skiing. I said, this is how you let the boat pull you up because you mustn't pull yourself out of the water because if you do pull yourself up, you're going to end up on your bottom. Don't do that. And if you try and stand up too fast, you're head over on your nose in the water. So the golden rule, if you fall off the, let go of the rope. Okay, you got it? Got it, got it. Repeat after me, let go of the rope. So he's hovering around in the water like this with his tracksuit bottoms on, his T-shirt on. And he shouts, go. And my father was driving the boat. Pull him out of the water. Head first. And he doesn't remember the golden rule. So he's hanging on to the rope for, it was only a split second, but long enough to see his face like was pressed up against the water. And he couldn't hang on anymore. And the rope pinged out of his hand. And we turned around, went to pick him up again. And I got to the back of the boat and said, come on, Bri, back in the boat. We'll have another go. He said, I'm not having another go. I said, come on, Brian, we all fall in first time. We'll have another go. You'll get better. I'm not getting back in the boat, Jacob. I said, why? I've lost my trousers, he says. <laughs> and my underpants. Like that. He'd lost them both. It dragged him off in as he's, he's going through the water. So he's got his little pink legs flapping around. And, I said, and I'm like, lost it. I said, it's okay. I'll go get a towel. So I got this towel. <laughs> and I'm just about to get him out of the water. And if you've ever been on Windermere, there's steamers coming up and down with hundreds of people on. And this steamer comes past, and they're all taking photographs of him. So we throw him back in the water. Now, I don't know about you. I have a very happy memory of that. Brian will never forget it either.
It certainly replaced a sad memory with a happy one, for me anyway. Anyway, I think uh, that's probably enough for me, because I could keep going for ages. Um, do you want to speak now? Do you want to show the little film? Show the film. that was the history, or some of it. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what happens now 
on a day-to-day basis at Caring for Life. And I've also put together um, a few thoughts here. Jason had asked me just to talk a little bit about supporting troubled people in general. Maybe with a few of the lessons that we learned at Caring for Life and some things that you are probably applying um, in the ministries that you're involved with um, at the minute. What I would say is I have been working at Caring for Life now for the last four years. I, um, as one of our young ladies said, um, who does Gail think she is? She came over here from Ireland and she took Jonathan's job, poor Jonathan. Um, it's the last time I'll ever do that. Thank you very much. Um, no, Jonathan was previously um, pastoral director before he took over as CEO when Peter stepped down four years ago and um, I'm now in that role. But my background, um, I've been involved with Caring for Life for I think it's about 12 years now as a volunteer and a trustee before um, I started working there. And it's actually Nicola's fault because when she moved to York, she got me involved um, all those years ago. Um, my background is in educational psychology. And one of the first things that Peter asked me to do was to come and see what happens at Caring for Life and see whether there's anything that I could add in terms of like training or resourcing or looking at the wisdom that's out there and what Caring for Life was doing um, for troubled people. And the thing that really struck me then and has stayed with me to now was that out of a heart of love, with the desire to share Jesus' love with troubled people, I felt what Caring for Life was doing was getting it spot on. They didn't have the jargon necessarily or the theory or the controlled randomized trials to prove that what they were doing was the right thing. They had Jesus' heart, the wisdom that God had given, and they just knew real people. They might not know what exactly what to do for borderline personality disorder, but they knew what to do for that person because they loved them. So I, right from the start, resisted categorizing and labeling and theorizing, theorifying what we were doing. Because actually, you can only love people one at a time and see them as, as Jesus sees them. Um, what we currently do at Caring for Life, there's allegedly three main strands. But every time we say this, we think, oh, yeah, and there's that, and then there's that, and then there's that. So it's not terribly straightforward to describe. But we have two supported living homes. Um, they're relatively small, eight men, eight ladies. Um, and we really are seeking the Lord for where we go with that in the future. We have to develop that area of the work. But currently, we have two supported living homes. Um, and those are folks who will probably struggle ever to live independently, although we have had folks who've, I suppose, graduated from them and are living more independently now. We have um, a housing support team, which is called our Being There team, and it was named by the people that we care for because they said the people are just always there. Um, so it's not called the Being There team. And we, that's about 120 to maybe 150 people, families who are vulnerable, um, chaotic, needing support, potentially homeless, at risk of homelessness, or like really finding it hard to sustain a tenancy and manage the ordinary practicalities of living, or else just very lonely and isolated. So that team supports people right across the city. Um, and then we have the farm where there are, in theory, we call it 16 therapeutic daytime projects. Um, our guys call it being on the agri team or the equestrian team or the horty team. We have all sorts of stuff going on. 
these projects. We have staff in these projects, we have volunteers, and we have our beneficiaries. So they come to the farm through the week, 90 to 110 people through the week. Um, and they come, shortest we currently have, I think it's like a two-hour slot. The folk, other folk come all five days. Um, and that varies according to need. That includes the folk who are in our homes, some of the folks who are supported by the Be In There team, and some folks who just randomly come to the farm. Um, we start every day together with breakfast and prayers. Um, and remarkably, everybody seems to want to come to that. It's optional. They don't have to. We have one lady who quite often chooses to go and have a smoke instead, but she often registers her prayer request before she goes. Um, but we have kind of family breakfast and prayer time in the morning. Then folk go off to the projects. Then we have coffee together. Then they go off to the projects. We come back. There's an hour's lunch. This scout hut that Jonathan talked about is now our centre, our refectory, where staff, volunteers, beneficiaries all do lunch, breakfast, everything together. And as one member of staff says, we don't do many miles to the gallon. We come and go, have coffee, lunch, all those things. But all those are very much part of what we do. But having worked previously, I worked in the Belfast board as a psychologist, so having worked in the statutory sector all my life, I can remember coming to Caring for Life and thinking, okay, there's like a scout hut there where there's not quite enough room for everybody to sit down, okay? And we're all eating together and we've got people with mental health problems and we've got people with addictions and we've got people with learning difficulties and we've got people with agoraphobia in a room full of 70 noisy people and we've got people with chemistry degrees and we've got people who've been in prison. We've got people who've lived on the streets and we've got people who are carrying teddy bears in their bags. <laughs> I haven't even started on them. Um, and coming from a background of criteria and categories and labels and diagnoses, I just looked at this and I thought, are we nuts? I mean, the, the really the first thought that I had through all of my involvement was this shouldn't work. This shouldn't work. And it works by the grace of God. And it works because it's family. And it works because it's real people. And it's not referral routes and diagnostic criteria and categories and boxes. It's those individuals, who's, some of whose faces you saw there. And it's their need and, and them being loved. Um, in terms of what we have left in the time that we've left, do you want to just ask questions and hear specific things? Or do you want me to go through some of this stuff? Are there burning questions or will I start off and see? Okay, okay. Um, have I, can I reach to click or are you going to click for me? You're very welcome to click, but I quite often am a bit random. So if I'm in the wrong slide, don't worry. Okay. Um, I think it's interesting when you're thinking of supporting troubled people. Um, um, and I think very much if you're involved in this from the world's point of view, it's very much... Let's all of us good, lovely people who've got it all together go out and help those who've got needs and troubles and difficulties. Obviously, as Christians, we know that that's not what it's about. It's broken people, supporting broken people. And it's broken people who have found the one who makes them whole. Taking that love and that um, grace and that forgiveness to other broken people just like us. Um, there's a brilliant book. 
I don't know if you know it by John Ortberg, called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Absolutely brilliant book and absolutely brilliant concept. Um, I would say not absolutely everybody even seems normal when you get until you get to know them, but once you do get to know them, you realize there's no such thing as normal. And he talks about that when we come to working with human beings, when we come to um, engaging with real life, we've come to what he calls the bargain bucket department. You know, you go into a shop and there's a bargain bucket and everything in it is sold as seen. Well, basically what they're saying to you with that is, there is a flaw, we're not going to tell you what it is, but it's definitely there, might be several flaws, and when you buy it and you take it home, you'll soon find out what the flaw is, but don't come crying to us, that's how you bought it, it's sold as seen, and when we're dealing with human beings, we're in the sold as seen department of the universe, so we can think probably much more easily of the flaws of all our loved ones than we can of our own, but they're there and we know it. And when we're dealing with people, um, we're sold as seen, every single one of us. Um, and he talks about, Jonathan talks about the people that we um, are supporting who wear their sins openly. And a lot of us are able to hide them much more easily than that. The way Ortberg puts it, he talks about the four friends who brought the paralyzed man to Jesus. And he talked about that man's mat being the symbol of all that was wrong with him. He couldn't do anything without his mat being carried. Um, and his mat was entirely visible. And he talks about us all being people who have a mat. They're not all as visible as that man's, but we all have it. And what we are in together is the fellowship of the mat. And what we're needing to be for some of the people that we're talking about is mat carriers. What do we want to do more than accept people with their flaws and with their difficulties and carry them to the Savior. So what we're aiming to be in all of these ministries that all of us are involved with is mat carriers. Um, having said all of that, knowing that we are flawed people, all of whom have their, our own mat, if we're engaging in practical care ministry of any kind, we are putting the needs of others before ourselves. We're acknowledging our own flaws and our own needs. And we know that we're all in this together. But actually, we have to significantly set that aside um, when we're engaged in those ministries. And you'll know exactly what I mean by that when you're doing it. So I was going to say, I was just going to maybe talk a little bit about some of the difficulties that people face who've had troubled backgrounds or are facing life with learning difficulties or any of that? Are you interested in hearing some of those things? Okay. Um, talking specifically then starting with um, the impact of early, emotional impact of early experiences. Lots and lots of the folk that we support have come from very troubled backgrounds. Still a number of them have come through the care system. Thankfully, very few now have lived in children's homes but many of them have lived in foster care. And I think the care system has improved greatly. And I think foster care is, can be fabulous and life-changing for children. But I think a lot of the adults that we support have had a number of failed foster placements. And I think very often that's not the fault of the, those placements. They, these have been too difficult. 
these children that maybe to support. Um, so what they haven't had is consistency of love and care and support. Um, to varying degrees, and also obviously some of the people that we support have had consistent homes, but they haven't had their emotional needs met. There's a lot of research being done currently on what's now being called adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. So if you're interested in this, you want to look any of this up. Um, the Scottish executive are doing quite a lot of work on this. But adverse childhood experiences has become like a handy way to talk about the fact that what happens to you when you're very small has an impact when you're very big. And I think sometimes um, in sort of care systems, people who have a diagnosis are acknowledged as having needs. If you've just had a pretty rotten time, that's not a diagnosis. And how does somebody cut you a bit of slack or give you a bit of support? You don't turn up and say, I've just had a rotten time, can you help me? So I think that's a useful term, the term adverse childhood experiences, because it's not fatalistic. It's not saying life will be always awful, but it's saying actually it has an impact. So I'm gonna need some support, I'm gonna need some help, I'm gonna need some understanding. Maybe. Okay, question for you. What do babies need to develop during the first two years? Not a bad one to start with. <laughs> food. Some of that's good too. Play. <laughs> and their parents as well. Yeah. Okay, loads and loads of things that children need in the early years come very naturally to us to think about. Um, they're not rocket science. You don't have to go away and you know study exhaustively. They are pretty natural. And the Bible tells us that we're pre-programmed to support and, and adore little small things, little small people when things work out properly. I often think that what we're doing at Caring for Life, um, but like some of the stories Jonathan said, sometimes we are trying to mimic as adults some of the things that people haven't had as children. So all the eating together, all the family type things, all the fun, the legitimized play, we are kind of big into nonsense and fuss and having a bit of crack at any opportunity. Lots of our folks didn't have that as small people and weren't supported in those ways. Um, I've got a couple of photos here which you can flick um, back and forward between. Some of you might recognize those girls who are now in their 20s. Have a look at those two photos. Those girls were six and seven when they were nursing a new baby. Can you see what they're doing? They're smiling when the baby's smiling. And they're tutting when the baby's looking cross. What do we do when we look into the face of a small baby? We go, oh, look, you're happy today. And look who's smiling. Oh, dear, 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 we're getting upset. Are we hungry? What you do is attune yourself to the emotion of the child. This is crucial for our emotional development. What we're doing from a very early age is emotionally engaging, supporting the child, naming and mirroring and reflecting emotions that they don't yet understand. At that stage, that small person is overwhelmed by hunger, cold, wet nappy, absolutely overwhelmed. What the adult does is hold, contain, support that emotion, 
reflect it, manage it, settle it, calm it. Children don't come self-calming. They need to be calmed. But through being calm, they learn to self-calm. That's on an emotional side. Um, cognitively, between zero and two, actual brain development is happening in relationship. There are physical parts of the brain that do not develop if the children are not in relationship. There was um, children who in the 80s were in orphanage systems throughout the world who were failing to thrive. And what they did was actual post-mortems on the babies after they failed to thrive. And what they found was the orbitofrontal cortex had just not developed at all. There was a piece of neuroanatomy that didn't develop in children who were not interacted with. And these were children who were fed and clothed and changed, but they weren't emotionally interacted with. We are designed by God to be in families, to be in relationship, to be understood, to be empathized with, to be emotionally supported. And this is not something terribly sophisticated. In one of the Romanian orphanages um, in the 80s, they took adolescent girls with learning difficulties and they brought them in to play with babies. The babies who were failing to thrive, thrived. Their brains developed, their emotions developed. This is not a very sophisticated thing you have to do. It's just attunement and engagement. And it's actually not about getting it right all the time. Of course we don't. But it's about having a relationship. These things develop in relationship. Um, there was an amazing piece of research done in Edinburgh University where um, mothers and brand new babies had their um, interactions like measured. And the prosody of the, like, the nonsense talk, the babble that was talked, followed exactly the pattern of human speech and turn-taking and reciprocal interaction. So what they did then was put the mums and the babies in two separate rooms and did it by CCTV, and it worked perfectly. Then they mistimed it by three seconds. So they did the mums in one room, the babies in another room, making the same face, making the same sound, making the same shapes, but mistimed. And the children became distressed and the mothers refused to continue with the experiment. So if you have the same person who's not attuned to you, you know when you're some talking to somebody and they're going, uh-huh, 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 and you go, you're not listening to a word I'm saying. And you're saying, uh-huh, in all the wrong places. That's basically what the babies were saying. And they just weren't having it. Um, the next slide, if you want to, there's so many things that develop in relationship. Um, I mean, I can leave these with you if you want to have any of these slides. But we are created to develop in relationship with one another. That's just how we work. Um, and healthy development occurs through attunement, not through perfection, just through attunement. Having somebody who actually wants to see the world from your point of view and tune into what your world is. One of the phrases we do talk about quite a bit at Caring for Life is that successful independence follows successful dependence. A lot of the statutory agencies are massively into independent living and massively into um, whatever agency is involved with somebody, they involve them with, support them for a short time, and then they stop supporting them so they can be independent. Lots of our guys have never experienced successful dependence. Somebody who's actually dependable, that they can depend upon and develop the capacity for independence. 
It's the same in adulthood as it is from zero. Um, we'll flick on a wee bit through some of this. Just interesting though, the, the research around not to two is fabulous and so um, helpful in understanding adults. I originally um, obviously was interested in this because I was working with children. Eventually I started talking a lot about this not to two stuff at secondary schools and teachers were going, oh flip, yeah, that makes sense. It's now, I can just see it's just as applicable to adults because it, it does follow right through. But another lovely wee bit of research, which I think is really helpful to us and I think is really biblical, is a bit of research around hardwiring happiness. So it talks about, is not to do all that matters? I'm sorry if you haven't a clue where I am, don't worry. <laughs> Are you? I'm good. Okay. Basically, there's a, there's a phrase um, in here which you can feel free to throw into any conversation that you're having tomorrow. But it is, it's a really, really positive thing in terms of the research. They talk about experience-dependent neuroplasticity. So you'll probably find lots of times you need to use that tomorrow. But what it's basically saying is, wonderfully, our brains still have the capacity develop, to develop in response to our experiences every single day, even as adults. So once you see that a child zero to two has had a rotten time, and is impacted by that rotten time, do you go, oh, it's very, very sad. I'm sorry that happened to you. Let's go and find somebody of zero so we can solve their problems because we'll never solve yours. It's not like that. Gloriously, God has created us that our brains can actually develop in response to our experiences every day. So how we interact with the people that we are with every day is a new experience, and it affects their brain chemistry. The research around um, hardwiring happiness talks about how we are naturally, our natural tendency is for our brain to be like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. And that's for all sorts of very good reasons, like we need to learn that it's not safe to touch a hot cooker. So if something, if something has caused us fear, it gets burned into our brain. But in life, it's not a very good thing to be Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive we can actually affect our brain chemistry and our neuroanatomy by focusing on the positive experiences and having more of them and having them in interaction. Um, I mean, the quote there is, the brain is the organ that learns, so it's designed to be changed by our experiences. Whatever we repeatedly sense and feel and want and think is slowly but surely sculpting neural structure. So when you're having positive, loving, supporting conversations with folks who've had a rough time. You're not just giving them a nicer memory. You're not just having a good day today. You're sculpting neural structure. It's pretty important stuff in every conversation, every interaction, every relationship. So I just think that's wonderful in the sense that God is saying to us, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he's saying, actually, this happens. This physically happens. I just love it so much that very often a piece of psychological research comes out that's meant to be revolutionary. And you're going, is that not kind of what God said all along? You know, thanks very much for catching up, everybody. Um, I don't think I'm going to go into any of the other areas just as much 
um, just going to talk a wee bit about, do you want to flick to about um, nearly towards the end, we were talking about the church. I mean, I think a lot of the folks that um, we come across, what some of the major things that we, we see that have affected them are the adverse childhood experiences, the lack of having somebody to successfully depend upon, the um, neural structure that hasn't developed in relationship, as well as a lot of folks who have learning difficulties, things that make the world just a lot more confusing than it is for you and me. Just think how confusing we find the world most days. When the world is a lot more confusing than that, there's a lot of evidence that folks who have learning difficulties are more likely to suffer mental health issues in later life just because of the stress and strain of surviving in a very confusing world. Apart from whether you may have also had negative childhood experiences, um, very often a lot of the people we support, and I'm sure you find the same, it's layer upon layer upon layer of rotten stuff. When you see people, you think, actually, that was really enough to be going on with, wasn't it? But it's very often these things just layer up. Add this sometimes to how people feel about the church or the gospel or what they've ever heard of God. And really, we can be in a very diff difficult position when we come to the point of um, sharing Jesus' love. One of our lovely gents who... Um, we support, and uh, was just at Bible study with him there on Thursday night. But I remember when he came to us, he was an avowed atheist, and he was very clear. He had very, very good reasons to not believe in God. Life had been very difficult for him. When we found him, he didn't ha have a friend in the world. And actually, maybe that's not fair to say. He had one person who defined themselves as a friend who was abusing and exploiting him. He actually had no friend in the world. Um, a glorious young man. And whenever he was invited the first time to the Bible study, he said, I know there's no God. I'm an atheist, um, so I'm not really interested. But he said, you know, maybe I should come. There might be something in it. Why else would they love you so much? That's what we are longing, that people will see beyond the love that they're getting from any human being and see that it actually is God's love inspired by God, but God's love flowing through us because we can't always explain it, but people can feel it. And our job is just to carry people's mats so that they can be brought to Jesus, accept them with their mat, maybe try to gain a bit of insight into their mat, but don't get too technical about it. Accept them with their mat, love them with their mat, and see if we can carry them on that mat um, to Jesus. And it's interesting Ortberg talks about within the church that we have choices. He talks about um, the story of the woman taken in adultery. And he talks about how we have a choice as a church, whether to be mat carriers or stone throwers. So when we're faced with people with needs and difficulties, are we going to carry their mat or are we going to pick up a stone? We have choices as to whether we look at somebody and think, all oh, right, you've had a rough time your outcome is inevitable? Or are we thinking actually God has built in this wonderful neuroplasticity that the relationships that we have might not just make you feel better or give you a good memory, but actually lay down something important for the rest of your life. Um, and we can choose to focus on 
the negatives in a person's life or actually to focus on their strengths. One of the things we often say is that very often the people who come to us, we're not going to be able to do anything about all these great massive big difficulties that they have. But we might be able to notice that they're actually brilliant with the horses. And we might be able to build on that and we might be able to benefit from that. And even if we can't focus on a positive or a solution, sometimes we can just walk with them through the rottenness so they don't actually have to face that alone. There's a lovely quote um, in here, and it's from, it's from a psychologist. Um, and it's talking about family. And his definition of a family is a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. Isn't that a lovely thought for the church? Operates and implements a totally irrational commitment to the well-being of its members, regardless of their mat, and carries that mat to Jesus. I was just going to finish um, sharing with you. I'm not sure if you're aware, if we can get this on YouTube. Not sure you're aware of this person, but I thought he combines theological and psychological wisdom in one person. So I'll let you hear him out, and then if you have any questions, we'll try and answer we should say more often. Number 20, thank you. And not just on Thanksgiving, every day. Number 19, excuse me. Number 18, here's a surprise corn dog that I bought you because you're my friend. There'll be more corn dogs, more happy people. This is a good idea. Corn dog for you, corn dog for you, corn dog for you. Number 17, I'm sorry. Number 16, I forgive you. Number 15, you can do it! But don't say it if it's something you can't do. Number 14, another thing that we should say more often, I have barbecue sauce in my shirt too. Before you say something about the barbecue sauce on somebody else's shirt, take a look at the barbecue sauce on your own shirt. Number 13, please. Number 12, everything is going to be okay. Number 11, Oh, you got me a corn dog too? You shouldn't have, buddy. Number 10, I don't know. I know a lot of people who need to say that. My sister. <laughs> Number nine, you're so awesome I named my dog after you. Wait, wait, wait. That could hurt someone's feelings. I mean boat. I named my boat after you. Wait, who even have a boat? You're so awesome, I legally changed my name to yours. Wait, that's super creepy. And, and just tell people they're awesome and mean it. Number eight. Hello, person I've never met before. Here's a high five. <laughs> Number seven. My sports team is not always the best sports team. It takes a big man to say that. Number six. Nothing. Sometimes that's the best thing you can say. Number five. <laughs> but it's just really funny. <laughs> Number four, I disagree with you, but I still like you as a person who is a human being and I'll treat you like that because if I didn't, it would make everything bad and that's what lots of people do in this lane. Whew, I need a water break, y'all. It's okay to disagree, but it's not okay to be mean. Number three, sometimes you just gotta scream. <laughs> Number two, life is tough, but so are you. Sometimes we all need to be reminded to keep going. Number one, something nice.
anything. If you can't think of anything nice to say, you're not thinking hard enough. So what about you? What do you think people should say more often? Leave a comment below and let's hear it. Oh, and I got a bonus one for you. Something that we should say more often? Let's dance. So then cake, subscribe.